Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim Let's Q. talk. Let's talk. Uh, we're going to be in Amos 6 today. We are continuing our series through Amos and... It's been good. I hope it's been good for you. It's been good for me. It's caused me to really look at myself and challenge myself in the way that I think, the way that I serve, the way that I honor and love God. It's caused me to really peel back some layers of myself and say, you know what, you're not getting this right, or you're not getting this right. Or, and God's blessed me in a couple of instances, it says that you are getting this right, keep that up. And so I've been both encouraged and challenged, and I hope that's the case for you too. This, so we're in week four of our sermon series through the book of Amos. Before that, we were doing a sermon series titled Dangerous Prayers, which were prayers that cost us something, starting with the prayer of righteous, uh, self-righteousness, um, of personal righteousness, and the prayer of humility, and all these prayers that cost us something. And so for like 11 weeks, man, I've been, I've been preaching tough sermons that have really caused me to reflect on who I am. I was teaching, or I was at a funeral last night, or yesterday afternoon, and I reached in my pocket, and it's the last time I wore that sport coat, apparently, was when I did the personal righteousness sermon because I found a piece of chalk in my, in my uh, sport coat. And if you were here for that one, you'll understand that. And it just messed me up all over again. I tell you all that to say that God has a challenging message for a challenging time for His people. Our job is to sit under it and accept it and grow in it. Amen? Now, that's not to say that I haven't been also praying, God, can you just give me one mercy love lesson? Like, I, like I feel like I've beat my own toes flat. and I just want to teach something just sweet and very best life now, right now. And, and he keeps saying no. So until he says yes, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. Amen? Because it ain't my place to decide. It's, it's our place to be obedient. So here we are in chapter 6 of Amos. And I want to talk to you about complacency in Zion. Complacency in God's people. So if you're taking sermon notes, this is the, the title of the sermon. Complacency in Zion. Last week we talked about how we are privileged to serve God according to His standard. Their religion is a good thing, but God sets the parameters for the religion that we, that, we, that we uphold. And when we don't do it properly, according to His standard, we fall into false religion. False religion turns into merciless religion. Merciless religion ultimately turns into dead religion. And so all of these things we talked about last week out of chapter 5, because I believe that's what Amos is telling us in chapter 5. And so I have to ask the question, the question is, how does that happen? How do you go from worshiping correctly? How do you go from being who God called you to be, from God's people to a place where you're practicing false religion, where you're practicing merciless religion, and ultimately dead religion that doesn't honor God at all? Is it an intentional plan? And the answer to that question is no. Complacency, which what is which which is what it means to be at ease, to grow complacent, 
never happens on purpose. The, the, I think it's the book of Hebrews challenges us to not drift away. Because we drift away. Anybody ever sat in a swimming pool, closed your eyes for a few minutes on a floaty, and you end up on the other side of the pool, you don't know how you got there? I have to. You know you can do the same thing in your spiritual life, and I've done that in my spiritual life. I've had counseling session after counseling session after counseling session that start or end with, I'm not sure how I got where I am. And I tell them, I said, you got where you are because you quit paying attention to where you were going. And this is exactly Israel's condition right now. This is exactly God's people's condition right now. We've forgotten who we are, who we're supposed to be, the religion that we're supposed to practice according to the parameters of God. And so we have drifted apart from our ultimate purpose, which is to honor and glorify God. Amen? And so there's discipline coming. It's interesting, you can read all of the Old Testament, and over and over and over and over again, you're going to see a cycle. And it's a, it's a cycle by which people become complacent, and then they come back to God. And it's like this. God is gracious and delivers His people from whatever the problem is. When He delivers them, they're blessed. Once they become blessed for a while, they become complacent. Once they become complacent, they start to sin again because... They're drifting from the truth. Once they start sinning again, God has to discipline them again because God is righteous and just. And then in that discipline, the people finally recognize that they have wandered away and they come to a place of repentance. And then we see it again. They come to a place of repentance. And what happens when, when we come to a place of repentance? God delivers us. And then in His deliverance of us, He blesses us. And in His blessing, we grow complacent. And in complacency, we sin. And over and over and over again. This has to stop. We see it all the time, over and over and over in the Old Testament, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit living in them. You do. We do. And so we should be able to live in such a way that this isn't the case for us. But it is. Because we're still not paying attention. God's people have to be paying attention. This cycle is true in the spiritual and in the physical. G. Michael Hopf, H-O-P-F, said this, and I love this quote, hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. And we see this generationally, after generation, after generation. Strong men make for easy times. Easy times make weak men. Weak men make the times hard because they forgot where they came from. They become complacent, and the cycle starts over. God is telling Amos for the people of Israel through Amos, don't be complacent. Stop the cycle. Because if we can't stop the cycle, if we can't stop being complacent, we're not good for the mission God created us for. We're not good for our purpose. We're not capable of making a difference. The church has turned into something it never should have been. I read an illustration recently that I want to share with you in regard to this. The church has become a cruise ship. And this is what I mean by that. Anybody ever been on a cruise? 
Okay, so you, a couple of you guys know what I'm talking about. But I'll tell you, you go on a cruise. I've been on a cruise. You go in there, it's luxurious. It's beautiful. There's music. Uh, there's, there's Broadway shows. There's everything that you could ever hope for. Everything is very comfortable. The intent is to keep you on the boat and keep you entertained for as long as they possibly can. And this is what the church has become. If the music ain't right, we, tri we, we try a different cruise line. I don't like that music there. If the preaching doesn't, or the Broadway show, doesn't tickle our ear, we look for another cruise line. If they don't have enough programs for our kids on the boat, we go look for another boat. Or sadly, this one has good programs for kids. This one has good Broadway shows, and this one has good music. So I'm going to go to this one this Sunday, that one next Sunday, the other one the Sunday after that. We never become faithful and connected the way we're supposed to be. We become cruise ship Americans. We become cruise ship Christians. But God never intended this for us. God intended for us to be something else. Some churches are, aren't like cruise ships at all. They're like battleships. Everybody's like, yeah, I'm a battleship. But that's wrong too. Because a battleship's battle is fought on the ship. And the people on the ship are responsible for ensuring that the ship stays safe. And this is another portion of the church in America today. A church where we expect the captain, the clergy, to do all the work and make sure everything gets done. That's not how it's supposed to be. The captain and the clergy are supposed to ensure that you're capable of getting things done. And so we're not supposed to be cruise ship Christians. We're not supposed to be battleship Christians. We're supposed to be aircraft carrier Christians. This is where you get trained. This is where you get equipped. This is where you load the plane to go out into the world to bring the battle to the enemy. What happens in here is only loading the plane that should be leaving here for a greater purpose than what's happening here. But that's not what we've done because we've grown complacent. We've grown comfortable in our cruise ship Christianity. We want the comfortable seat. We want the large sanctuary auditorium. And, and independently, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. Unless it's at the expense of righteousness. Unless it's at the expense of reverence and humility. And then everything is wrong with that. And so, here Amos is, talking to Israel. And he says, listen, you have a mission. It's not a cruise ship mission. Your time for rest and relaxation is over. You need to stop being complacent. And then he, he essentially answers three questions. Or not three questions, he makes three statements throughout this chapter. That he, he wants to identify the fact that they're is a cause for complacency, there is a cost for complacency, and there is a cure for complacency. And that's what the three things I want to talk to you about. Why are we complacent? What does complacency cost us? And how do we stop being complacent? So here we go. Number one. Complacency has a cause. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, and I'm going to break... I'm just, I'm legitimately just going to break these verses down for you. Woe to you. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, 
Let me stop right there. Woe is a sign of is a word of judgment. Anytime you see woe in the scripture, he's essentially saying judgment to you. Jesus in Luke chapter 11, I believe, talking to the Pharisees and the lawyers, the scribes, like seven or eight times says, woe to you, Pharisee, for doing this. Woe to you, Pharisee, for doing that. Woe to ye, scribe, for doing this. He's essentially saying judgment to you because you do this. Judgment to you because you do this. Judgment to you because you do this. And I could go on and on, but I think you get the idea. He's saying, judgment to you because you are at ease in Zion. There's judgment coming for those who have, been, who have allowed themselves to grow complacent in their cruise ship when they should be on their aircraft carrier. Everybody still with me on the analogy? And so he starts reading, or he starts talking, and I'm going to read. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, the distinguished men of the foremost of nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Kalna and look, and go from there to Hamath the great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are they better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than yours? Do you put off the day of calamity, and would you bring near the seat of violence? Those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who improvise to the sound of the harp and, like David, have composed songs for themselves, while who drink wine from sacrificial bowls, while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils, yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they will not now go into exile at the head of the exiles, and the sprawler's banqueting will pass away. So everybody in here knows exactly what he's talking about, right? Because this is kind of verbiage we use all the time. Right? I read this and I'm all, sprawler's banquet. I'm not sure what that means. But essentially what he does is he breaks down four causes of complacency. And I want to explain them to you. Cause number one. The first cause of their complacency was due to their presumption. Verse 1 and 2 says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. We've talked about that already. And to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, the distinguished men of the foremost of nations to whom the house of Israel comes, go over to Kelna and look and go from there to Hamath the great, then go to Gath to the Philistines. Are they better than these kingdoms or is their territory greater than yours? This is what he's saying. There will be no place to hide in your complacency. You have become presumptuous. And because you have become presumptuous, there's no place for you to hide. He says, woe to you in Zion. Zion is the capital of Jerusalem. Is, is essentially another name for Jerusalem. And the people that were in Jerusalem thought that their place could save them from the wrath of God. Could save them from unrighteousness. And I'll tell you, your position and your place will not save you from the wrath of God if you have wrath of God coming. They, the throne of David was there. The temple was there. It was the capital of the kingdom of heaven on earth was there. And they thought, you know what? They presumed that God, no matter who they were, because they were people of the covenant, because they belonged to the seed of Abraham, that they could grow complacent and do whatever it is they wanted to do, or more specifically, do nothing that they should be doing, 
and God would save them anyway. They forgot that there's a necessity for obedience, righteousness, and reverence for God. And so have we far too often. Can I tell you, it doesn't matter where you're at. If you're not obedient, reverent, if you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter. Nothing is going to save you. The way this plays out today, and I've told you this every sermon in this series, I'm not telling you this because I care what you think what happened about 2,000 years ago. I tell you because I want you to know how it relates to what you're doing today. We become presumptuous by saying stuff like this. Hey, are you a Christian? Yeah, my grandmama's a Christian. I didn't ask if your grandmama was a Christian. I asked if you're a Christian. You presume that her position is going to save you. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I go to church every Sunday. I didn't ask if you go to church or what church you go to because your church isn't going to save you. Only Jesus is going to save you. Don't presume on where you are or what you're doing. And so they were presuming, and so do we, by believing that their place in Jerusalem would save them. He, he discusses Samaria. Samaria was the capital of Israel. And Samaria was a very fortified city. It was up on top of a hill, thick walls, hard to scale, almost impenetrable. And so those people presumed upon their safety, their fortifications, that they would be okay. And then God had an answer for that too through Amos. He said, look at these other three cities. He said, if you think Samaria can save you, look at Kalna, Hamath, Gath. Are they better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than yours? Because all three of those cities were previously destroyed. And if those cities could be destroyed, whatever it is you're building your fortification on can be destroyed too. And God will destroy it if He has to to get your attention. Because He's strong enough to do it. Can I tell you there's nothing inside of you except for Jesus Christ that's capable of saving you from the strength and the wrath of God. You can say what you want, think what you want, act the way that you want. Your presumption will send you straight to hell. I told you these messages are tough. But they're necessary. The church has to wake up. So they become presumptuous in the face of a God that is all-powerful. In the face of a God that can and will bring perfect judgment against an imperfect people. Number two, the second cause of their complacency was procrastination. In verse 3 we read this, Do you put off the day of calamity? And would you bring near the seat of violence? And so he's saying, you've grown complacent, you've grown at ease in Zion because you think the day of calamity isn't coming for you. The time of violence isn't coming for you. And whether you've said it out loud or whether it's a, it's a product of the way that you live your life, this is how that plays out in the lives of most people I know. Jesus ain't coming back today, I got time. I get saved next weekend. I'll deal with that later. Can I tell you, I didn't come to Jesus, to know Jesus until I was 34 for this reason. 
Because I, I, my granny used to drag me to a Church of God of Prophecy. And I watched the little 78-year-old ladies at the Church of God of Prophecy all go to the altar and ask God to forgive them and save them every week because they stubbed their toe and said a dirty word or something. I don't know what a 78-year-old lady can do that she needs to get saved every week, but them was some partying 78 years old, apparently. And so they went, but this is what I did. I said, you know what? If they have to get saved every weekend, I'm just going to wait. I got time. Can I tell you, I believed then that God was real. But I refused to make a declaration, thank you so much. But I refused to make a declaration of his lordship because I thought I had time. And praise God I had time. But we're not guaranteed time. We wait for our day of calamity, much like it says in uh, the chapter we read last week, 5, 18 through 19, this is the condition. Many of us sit here and we go, man, we can't wait for the day of the Lord. When you ain't ready, you procrastinated too long. But in our self-righteousness, we think we're good, and so we say, man, I can't wait till the day of the Lord. But Amos said this in chapter 5, he says, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. You're calling out saying you can't wait till Jesus comes back when you ain't even ready for Jesus to come back. You've allowed yourself to procrastinate to the degree that you're not ready. You can run from a bear and run into a lion, which means that there's no place you're going to run. He's going to find you. You can even make it into your house. Be excited about that. Be wore out. Put your hand against a wall and a snake will bite you. You're still destined to destruction because we've procrastinated, because we've said, man, I can't wait for the Lord to come while doing nothing to prepare for the Lord to come. It's time we start taking these religious words out of our mouth and maybe put a religious thought in our heart. That's good right there. Somebody ought to tweet that. So they procrastinated. It's much like Felix in, in Acts 24, 25, when he was talking to Paul. He looked at Paul, he said, Go away for the present time, and when I find time, I will summon you. Whew, that's dangerous. Don't wait till later to be summoned. Be summoned today. There's no indication in Scripture that Felix ever gave his life to the Lord. There is no hope for those who think that the day of the Lord will never come. And so they become complacent. Imagine how sad it will be. Let me stop yelling at you and just lower it down for a minute. Imagine how sad it will be having sat in church all of your life but never committing your life, truly committing your life to the Lord. And at the end of your life, him look at you and say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Because you determined that your ease was more important than your holiness. This is what the Lord is screaming to us today. Stop procrastinating. I don't know if Jesus is coming back today. I'll tell you, he's closer to coming back today than he was coming back yesterday. And we should be ready for it. Number three. 
The third cause of their complacency was their self-indulgence. Verse 4 says, Those who recline on beds of ivory and fall on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. They had become self-indulgent. God isn't condemning their wealth. Let me, let me start with that. Because it doesn't matter where you lay. Lay on a bed of ivory, lay on a cot. Eat lamb or steak or eat spam and hot dogs. I don't think God cares about that. He blesses you so that you'll be blessed. But can I tell you, when you allow your blessing to be the thing that allows you to engorge yourself and become complacent to the blessings of God, forgetting to be thankful for the blessings of God, you're in a dangerous place. We have to recognize that God gave us what we have because He loves us. Not so that we could be self-indulgent, whiny little brats. Because like I said a moment ago, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. I believe Brother Leonard talked about it Wednesday during the offertory. The, the man that had so much that he determined that he was going to tear down his old barn, put up a new barn so that he'd have room for all his stuff. But the Lord required his soul of him that day. At what point do we get to say, you know what, I'm just going to kick back Eat, rest, and be merry. The answer to that question is never. You weren't made for self-indulgence. I look at the older people in the room. And I hesitate to say what older is because I'm getting very close. But I look at the older people in the room and I, can I tell you, you're needed more than you've ever been needed in your whole life in the body of Christ. The Bible, did you know the Bible says that the old men are supposed to teach the young men, the old women are supposed to teach the young women? You know why the world's gone to hell? Because so many of the old men and the old women have abdicated their responsibility to do the Word of God, which is to tell the younger generations how to live and how to act. Mainly because they refuse to admit that they're old. You guys ever seen a 75-year-old woman trying to dress like she's 25 at the club? I hope you hadn't seen it at the club, but you get the idea. She can't admit she's old, so she can't tell somebody else how to act when they're young. My whole point is, it's not time for you to rest. It's never time for you to rest. You can rest in eternity. We need you. I got asked one time, have you ever thought about moving to two services, one contemporary service and one traditional service? And I said, why would I do that? You're going to have a spiritually lopsided church. All your wisdom is going to be in one service. All your foolishness is going to be in another one. And they're never going to spend time together. That sounds harsh, but that's the truth. The Bible says very specifically that strength is the, is the pride of a young man. Gray hair is the pride of the old. So you're going to have one strong, physically strong group and one wise group, and neither one of them are ever going to hang out. God didn't give us what he gave us for the purposes of self-indulgence and comfort. Number four, the, first, the fourth and final cause of their complacency was indifference. They became indifferent when they became indulgent. 
they started thinking that it was all about them, that they should be comfortable, that they should have. Verses 5 and 7, 5 through 7 says, Whoever vies to the sound of the harp, and like David have composed songs for themselves, who drink for the wine from sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils, yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Joseph is a poetic term. Joseph being a patriarch to, to signify all of Israel. And so he's saying, very simply, you have all this stuff. I gave you all this stuff. You became self-indulgent at the cost of indifference. Your complacency has caused you to be indifferent to the destruction of the people around you. God calls us to something better. Oh, those are the, that's the cause of complacency. These four things. Presumption. Procrastination. Self-indulgence. Indifference. Can I tell you that there's a cost for these things? 11 and 14 reads like this. For behold, the Lord is coming to command. I'm sorry, not 11 and 14. 8 through 11 and 14 reads like this. The Lord is sworn by himself. The Lord of God of hosts has declared. Let me tell you, when the Lord de declares of himself, you count on that being true. When God said, I swear by myself, that that's going to happen. That's not a, it might happen, it should possibly happen. That's going to happen. I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and detest his citadels. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all it contains. And, I, if, and if it will be, if ten are left in one house, they will die. Then one's uncle or his undertaker will lift him up to carry out his bones from the house. And he will say to the one who is in the innermost of the house, Is anyone else with you? And that one will say, No one. Then he will answer, Keep quiet, for the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. For behold, the Lord is going to command that the great house be smashed to pieces and the small houses to fragments. Verse 14, For behold, I'm going to raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath, which is the very northern border, to the brook of Araba, which is the very southern border. And so he, he pronounces three judgments on them because of their complacency. There's going to be three costs. And I can't say that these are the costs that we will pay because God determines that. I don't. He's just, this, is the, this is the cost that he put on the, the people of Israel for their, for their particular sin and complacency. First, he says, I'm going to send a plague to Israel. Nine out of ten people are going to die. And the person that doesn't die is going to hide in his house. And when somebody stops by there to pick up the dead bodies, he's going to say, be quiet. Don't even call on the name of the Lord for fear that he'll die too. Isn't that sad? Because if he called on the name of the Lord is the only way he can guarantee he won't die. That's a word for us. Kind of caveat, it's kind of a sidebar note. But can I tell you, when you see, when it seems like death is surrounding you and your whole life is upside down and everything is as bad as it could possibly be, get, don't hide from the Lord. Call out to God. 
that whatever plague there is on your life, that it be removed because only God is capable of removing it. In the next verse, he says that he's going to destroy every house. And in the verse after that, he says he's going to turn the nation over to another nation. He's going to put them in exile. All because they were complacent. But praise God, complacency has a cure. 12 and 14 says, Do horses run on rocks? Or does one plow them with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into poison, the fruit of righteousness into wormwood, which means you've just turned justice and righteousness into bitterness and worth nothing. You have rejoiced in Lodabar, which means they've rejoiced in the barren place instead of in God where they should have. And say, have we not by our own strength taken Kerner for themselves so they were taking credit for all of these things? But he asked the question at the beginning of verse 12. He says, do horses run on rocks or does one plow them with oxen? He's asking a simple question. One that's not simple to us because we're not from an agrarian society. We don't come from farming culture. He's saying, do you run horses on scraggly rocks? Would you run your oxen that way? And the answer to that question is no. Of course they would. He's just asking them, could you use wisdom to see that what I'm telling you is true? That all these things that you're doing are going to cost you something? And it's going to be significant? Remember, we're not at count three. God's still giving the count one, praise God. If you don't know what that is, go listen to the second sermon in this series. God hasn't laid down the punishment. He's still declaring punishment's coming. And so he's making a plea. Take heed to it. Don't rejoice in Lodabar. Instead, rejoice in life. Don't say you have the things that you have by your own power because you don't. Use wisdom. They didn't have the Holy Spirit the way you have the Holy Spirit. And so I would just say, could you submit to the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit tells you stop living in death, stop hanging out in Lodabar, but seek joy and seek life? Their joy and life was available to them in repentance. Ours is available the same way but through the work and suffering of Christ Jesus so I, I would tell you don't don't rejoice in Lodabar in the barren place Jesus Christ himself gave his life for you so that you could have the hope of eternal life and then put his spirit in you that you were purposed to fan into flame so that you don't become complacent. So that ultimately in all things you can glorify God. Amen. That's the call today. Have you allowed yourself to grow complacent? For any of these reasons? Have you determined to be self-sufficient? Self-indulgent? Have you determined to procrastinate because you don't think the day of the Lord is coming? And you have time? If that's you. Recognize the cause. Don't pay the cost. Accept the cure. That's my prayer for you today.